Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where we're learning to invest the way Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do it and have been teaching it for about 50 years. And no, we're not talking about what Warren tells you you should do if you don't know that much about investing, which is to go invest in indexes. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he does say that. That is not what we're talking about. And by the way, Dad, I want to add to that list of people I just had this feeling that I should add that you teach me investing now too. It should be Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and my dad. Oh, just like our book, Invested. Honey, that's really sweet. Thank you. It's true. You're in the same category for me. Well, I very much appreciate that, sweetheart. And I love you very much for that. And I'm telling you right now, this last these what, however many podcasts we've done have been so good for me as an investor. I'm telling you, man, teaching you is a process of learning a lot more about investing than I really knew before I started this process. Because I have to go dig it up. You're really good at forcing me to dig in and make sure I actually understand the very thing I'm saying to you. Which brings us to today's subject. Which is, we have a best-selling book, Dad. I, I know that what you meant is the technical indicators, but we have a best-selling book. We do. <laughs> High five to you in New York High City. Five. Danielle's up in New York City right now. She's doing PR for Hell the new yeah. book, Invested. And you guys have been so great to get copies of this thing. It went screaming onto the New York Times how-to bestseller list, which is the hardest list to get on. It's... Uh, books that teach you things, right? It's like this, This it's the advice and how-to list, and right. it's like ultra vague, because basically most books can fit into that, including books like ours that are kind of like a combo of advice and how-to and business and investing. And then they have a whole separate list just for pure business books, which for whatever reason, we didn't get on that list, which apparently, by the way, is much easier to get on. And we might have been number one on that one because we've sold so many books. But um, but we're on the advice and how-to list, which is just thrilling. And um, so we're number seven on that one. And you know what else we're on, Dad? What? We're on the indie bookstore bestseller list. We are number 11 on the indie bookstore bestseller list, which... I've been told by our publisher with many emails involving exclamation points that that is a really big deal because there are so few people who buy books from independent bookstores and it's hard to get your book out there to them. So the fact that they've been ordering our book and then selling our book shows that we have really good support all around the country, which to me means a lot because we've been asking you guys to buy it from independent bookstores and we really, really want to support them and appreciate you guys doing that. And we just got an article in the New York Times, which is also completely off the chart that we did that, that recommends this book as one of three books about business Yeah, that you should well, buy. About like personal finance and personal investing. Personal finance and investing. And for, for younger people, too, which is really yep. cool. Yep. So that was um, cool. So and then invested is on the USA Today list also, which is very cool because I didn't know this. I didn't know any of this until recently. The USA Today list is just a list of all books sold in the country. Like they're not bifurcated into category in any way. And how and long we're is number, the list? Uh, I think it's a hundred. Hundred books. So the hundred best-selling books in the country that week. Exactly, and we're number fifty-one That's in the entire country. Awesome. 
<laughs> of all books, including fiction books. We have a lot of fans in this podcast. We've had well over, we're almost, a, I think we're pushing 4 million downloads now. Yeah, um, we are. So you guys are out there banging away at that and we really appreciate it. And we'd love to see you get even more of these books out there. It's just to keep this on the bestseller list means just that many more people are going to learn how to invest. And by the way, this book forms uh, a lot of the material for the Rule One workshop um, that we do for free. If you're a, if you're a podcast student, um, go over to the website at ruleoneinvesting.com um, or you can go over to daniellettown.com. Find yep. your way over to our workshop, get a get a uh, scholarship to it. And this workshop, which we used to sell people and continue to sell people for thousands of dollars, is yours for free. And we don't sell anything there. We just teach you these principles of investing. And once you've read this book, you'll be so prepared to be at that workshop. That's the beauty of it. We've we had people writing in that, oh my gosh, I wish you had this book a year ago when I, you know, before I took the workshop because it just would make the workshop so much even more understandable. And that makes sense because we get into the deep water real fast in that workshop. So it's nice to have a background. Yeah, um, it's funny, you know, I've been like thanking so many people and and we are incredibly grateful to everybody for buying this book just personally. But I also keep trying to remind myself that it's not about us. It's about the information that's in there and how so many people are going to, I hope, learn these investing skills, whether or not you, you know, spend your time doing this for fun or not. I think you'll find it fun, but just to have that background, just to understand some of the language and to hopefully enjoy it while you're reading it and learning those things, which was my entire goal from the very beginning. I'm just excited that people are going to start feeling more comfortable with this investing thing now that we have it all written down and out there for them. I mean, I think you my, just made a really good point, though. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead if you want to finish that. No, no, go uh, ahead. Well, I just you made, thought you made a really good point that this isn't about you and me in any way. And I mean, really seriously is not about us. The information that we're teaching you comes entirely with what we're going to, except for what we're going to teach you today. It comes entirely, <laughs> <laughs> it comes entirely from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Um, and then with sort of amplification uh, that I've learned over the years and Guy Spear has learned over the years who wrote about it and Manesh Pabrai who's learned over the years and who wrote about it. So we've written about it in sort of our different ways. Um, those of us who are really serious students of, of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Um, but at the end of the day, none of this would happen without those two guys. And no. they, are, they deserve every single bit of credit it's possible to give them. And by the way, if you're a pod, if you're a fan here of the podcast and a fan of Warren Buffett, Danielle and I are going to Omaha this year. Heck you know? yeah, for our first time. And yep. we have so many irons in the fire of fun things we're going to be doing there. Yep, absolutely right. Which we can't announce right now because, you know, they're still being worked on. They're being worked on, be cool. but it's going to be um, cool. And we can announce this, that we are going to have all of the rulers. That's what we're calling ourselves, the rulers, okay. rule one investors. <laughs> we're going to have all these rule one investors who have decided to go to Omaha. I don't know how many are going to go, but, um, you know, 60 or 70,000 people show up. So it could be a lot, could be, a, I mean, a lot would be a few dozen, right? That'd be huge if we had a few dozen people. But on Sunday morning, there is a charity 5K run walk. 
which I will be walking because I've got a bad <laughs> knee. So I'm walking it. And uh, that's about three miles for those of you who've never done one of these. And um, I assure you, you can drop out anyway along the line. You can just bail if you don't feel like doing the whole thing. Oh, I didn't know anything about this. You're telling me this for the first time. Yeah, well, I want a lot of our listeners to come to this if they want to come to Omaha. And then it's on Sunday morning. You'll get I guess I better run. I guess I better start running. <laughs> yeah, start some running. <laughs> and uh, we're all going to wear Rule rule 1 t-shirts. They, you'll see us. We got It says Rule 1 on it. And you'll see any however many of us there are there with these t-shirts. So anyway, we'll see you there in Omaha if you want to come. That, that was by way of saying we love you, Warren. And we're going to pay homage to these two incredible people who have created a cult of wealth. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They've created a cult I of just, wealth. I can't believe that you just took this like gratitude for them and turned it into promotion of you walking <laughs> in a race wearing a t-shirt that says rule one. Can we just have a <laughs> moment was, to observe you? the master at work right now? <laughs> Only you would bust me for this. And I didn't even think of it like that. I know you didn't. The, I know the you idea didn't of the t-shirt was that thinking. you could find us. You're like, you promotional jerk. Oh, man. No, but so you were mean. just thinking like, oh, we'll be in this race and we'll be sort of like sending our gratitude through through walking. Through showing yeah. up. Through showing up and being part of the whole weekend. Darn it's right. very sweet. For it's very showing sweet. up. Um, but what I wanted to mention when you were talking about like stuff you're teaching um, this is really important to me, so I do want to mention this. The book is not a teachy book. Like, it, I did not want to write a book that was about, here's how you should do everything. The end. I wanted to write a really fun, entertaining, kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of a sarcastic, like, somebody told me recently that it's an exasperated voice about investing, which I loved. Um I, it's just my story. It's my story of how I started out as okay, somebody, wait. and you guys who have heard the podcast since the beginning, you know it. I started out as somebody who was ultra skeptical and really wanted not much to do with this stuff, except that I knew I needed to do something with my money. And now three years later, I'm sitting here talking about going to the Berkshire, Hath the, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting with my book in which I basically like describe all the principles of Warren Buffett rule one investing. And so this book is not a like chapter one, here's what to do. Chapter two, here's what to do. It's like my story filled with, you know, hopefully fun bits about stuff I went through, the ups and downs, the relationship between my dad and I, the changes I had to make about how I felt about money and felt about investing and so much fear and anxiety around this stuff. So one of the best, I've gotten so many good compliments in the last week since the book came out. It's just been really amazing. So fun. Well, let's talk about the stuff that Warren Buffett doesn't teach. I know it's such a weird topic today. that we're on, but we got onto it because we did this live podcast um, when the book came out and the market was going up and down like nutso. And everyone was asking us, is this the crash? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? And so we started talking about the indicators that you use. And my dad pulled out technical indicators out of nowhere, <laughs> <laughs> which just goes to show we have so many more things to talk about. Um, so yeah. last time, Dad, you mentioned um, 
three in three technical indicators and what technical indicators are are uh i don't know if i can really describe it from having heard it one time it's like um data right like charts out of data yeah it's almost always pricing data pricing. over time okay yeah. um so last time you talked about a moving average pricing data chart mm -hmm. And then we said the other two that you are going to talk about are the MACD and the stochastic, right. which is very hard to say. Um, and that's it. And that's, that's what we promised to talk about. So is, does it matter what order we talk about this in? No, uh -uh. they're okay. all sort of equally powerful and equally total crap. Okay. I so. know. Well, my favorite thing you said was that there's they're basically opaque crystal balls and they're like reading clouds, but there's some benefit to reading clouds the same way that other people are reading the clouds. There it because is. those people are betting a lot of money on how they read the clouds. There it is. That's just a fact I of life. Fundamentally disagree with because you've been teaching me not to time the market. Right. And that's all about timing the market. Right. So at the end of our last podcast, I said I totally disagree. And that's why, because I, I just don't, I think if you're not paying attention to these, um, these timing things, then it doesn't matter how other people are betting their money based on the clouds. That said, I think right now, everybody's a little curious about timing the market just enough so that you don't get caught. It's it, what, what drives the perception that uh, it's important to time the market is that Warren Buffett is timing the market. Is he? What do you mean? He has $116 billion in cash and he's waiting oh. for stuff to uh, go on sale. And it. he basically has said uh, very clearly in last year's letter that every 10 years or so, we have an economic storm. And when that economic storm happens for a value type investor, it rains gold. That means it's giving you opportunities to buy wonderful companies at super cheap prices because the recession that comes along every 10 years drives down uh, the price of stocks in the stock market. And that allows Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger to pick up wonderful businesses that they've got on their list very cheap. And they're waiting right now for that to happen. Now, for Buffett, the way he waits, which is completely what we teach you guys, is he waits by simply looking in hard and looking all the time diligently for something wonderful to buy. So this is what I've been teaching you, Daniel. You just mm -hmm. you're going to be looking for something wonderful to buy. So the first thing you have to do is you have to know what to look for. That means what are you capable of understanding? Then you have to narrow that group of things down by knowing the companies in that smaller group that are capable of defending themselves against competition because they have some intrinsic characteristic in the company, like railroad tracks or shelf space in a grocery store, something you can't take away from them very easily that keeps their profits high. This is called a moat. And they're usually these companies. Ideally, we're, we're going to match our values with the values of the people who run the business. So we're not mm -hmm. putting money with people who are jerks. That's our mission part of it, which we yeah. added to Charlie's four principles. Yep, which is something they don't specify, but they do. And, um, and then finally, we want to be able to buy that company when it's on sale. And it's that last part that is keeping Warren Buffett in cash right now. Warren truly doesn't give any care whatsoever to what the market price is. But he cares quite a lot that he can't find a really good 
acquisition at a cheap price right now. And that's a pretty good indicator for us little guys that this thing is not a great market to be in. Wait, so let me just rephrase that. So you're saying he just cares about cheap individual companies. Right. He doesn't care about the market overall. Right. Really? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, let me I, put it like this. I, I, I haven't heard you say it quite like that before. For some reason, that's striking me. Well, he said it once like this. I thought it was phenomenal. He said, if the Federal Reserve chairman came to him and personally told him where interest rates will be in a year, uh-huh. which would give you a heck of an edge yeah. to bet on the market, right? Mm-hmm. Market direction driven by interest rates. Warren said they wouldn't change a single investment in their portfolio. In other words, it's irrelevant information to him what the short-term directions of the market are. And the long-term direction of the market really follows American prosperity. So he's a total bull when it comes to the long-term direction of the market and doesn't care about the short-term direction of the market. So why is he in cash? Yeah. Well, why? What do you think? Why is he in cash? Well, he's in cash because he can't find individual companies that are priced well below their value. Right. And why can't he find individual companies that are priced well below their value? Because the market as a whole is, is overpriced. Overpriced. Bingo. So but, while he doesn't care, yeah, he's a terrific indicator for us, right? Because for us, we don't have what he has. We are little guys. $100 billion in cash? That came from not selling other stuff. It came from other things. It came from the cash flow from all of the companies he owns generating hmm. cash into Berkshire. Hmm. So hmm. these companies are run as cash machines and they throw literally billions of dollars of cash into Buffett's hands every year. That's how he's running Berkshire to say, give me the cash. Give me the float from from my insurance companies. Give me the uh, excess cash, the, the owner cash or the free cash flow from all these other businesses I own. Give me all that and I'm going to reinvest it. And the problem he's got is he, the cash is coming in and he doesn't have any place to put it right now. But you and I, you know, we have cash coming in, but it's small. It's just like a little bit extra over what we're making every month in our job, right? That's, that's the yeah. extra cash that's available. Um, and when he says... Look, when it starts to rain gold, you need a wash tub. You need to go out there with a wash tub, not a thimble. And the problem we've got is if we stay invested in the market, we only have a thimble. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what you hit on it perfectly. That's what everyone is asking about this over and over. It's not that they care so much about what's going to happen to the market. It's do I ride with this with the investments I have or do I sell my investments right now and wait? And Warren's answer is going to be really clear. It's going to be, don't sell anything. The best thing to do for the long run is to just wait because the track record of trying to guess whether the market's going to continue going up or if it's going to go down, the track record of people who are trying to do that is miserable. It's terrible. You end up out of the market when the market continues to rock and roll. So his answer is going to be, if you're not able to find wonderful businesses that are on sale, individual companies, we're talking about 10 or so, if you're not able to do that kind of work and do it right, um, then you really need to stay invested in the index and just ride it out. I don't know, but that's a different answer than what you just said, because invested in the index is different than being invested in, let's say, let's say you're already doing like role one investing style stuff and you own three companies. 
and you've owned them for a while and they're up and you're debating, is it time to sell? So I know that you say, um, or you've taught me, you only sell if the story changes. Or? Or, I don't know what the or is. If the price of the company, driven by greed in the market, gets so high above its real value that it simply can't continue rolling on at some crazy number in the future, and you have better places you can put the money, then it makes sense to sell. Well, that sounds a lot like timing the market. No, because timing the market is just trying to guess, okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is, it is actually a form of timing the market. It's basically saying that I'm going to time the market based on the value of this business. Now, here's the real, you ready for the real spin? Buffett did that for years. He did that for years and years and years. In fact, his basic fundamental strategy for years, I'm talking all the way up into the, certainly into the 1970s. So well after he met Charlie uh, and Charlie started to modify some of what Warren was doing, he was absolutely riding businesses up in price until they got to their intrinsic value and then he was selling them. And the reason he was doing that is because once a business is at its intrinsic value, it's only going to grow at the rate of the growth of its of its cash. It's only going to grow that fast, whatever that is. Some businesses like a chewing gum company might grow at 4% a year. Other companies like uh, Apple might grow at 20% a year. But whatever it is, is it's only going to grow from there on at the rate of its of its growth of cash flow, whereas it's going to grow from an on sale price to its intrinsic value extremely quickly. Right. That's going to double your money in three years or so as it goes from, hey, it's on sale, 50 percent discount to it's back to intrinsic value over a three year period will double your money. That's a 24 to 26 percent, 26 percent per year rate of return. Like once the event rectifies once the event rectifies exactly once that event stops uh being a that problem, seems like a pretty big that seems like a pretty big claim you just said i'm not sure i totally buy that like right, it's just like automatically going to go in three years back to its uh, assessed value like that seems like it could be like four years or <laughs> right i don't know well, of course, yeah <laughs> And so we we basically target companies i'm in this sweet spot I, I don't know if i've ever taught you this before no, this is like, I don't know what happened, but our book came out and all of a sudden it's like, let me give you all of this new information. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I'm, have to you have to walk before you can run. No, I mean, you're right. You're right. You, I mean, it's it's pretty cool, actually. I'm just a little like, whoa. Um, but dad, we promised to talk about MACD and stochastic. Should we should we cancel or should we postpone fulfillment of our promise and keep talking about? Yeah. We're gonna, we'll talk about MACD and Stochastic next time. There's no rush yet, although it's getting close. I think we can hang out another week. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So uh, this thing about it going up to its intrinsic value within a certain expected amount of time. Yeah. I mean, you did teach me that when you're defining an event, it's... Um, it should be rectifiable within one to three years. Like it's a it's a relatively short term event. Right. But I didn't I hadn't connected that to the idea that actually you would expect that price to go up to its intrinsic value during that amount of time as well. Right. Because price, as you 
have many times informed me is not the same as value. So who knows what could happen with the actual price? Right. I mean, the market can do irrational things, but it yeah. does those irrational things on the relatively short term basis. On the long term basis, mean over five to 10 years, the market is very, very good at pricing things correctly. Um, it's going to have fear based pricing during a recession as businesses start to have problems with their uh, the ability to borrow money and continue to grow. Uh, consumers have problems because they can't borrow any more money and they, they can't get their credit cards rolled over. So they stop consuming. That means people get laid off and, and right, it spirals down. So when that's going on, businesses are making less and less money. Their earnings are going down and that reduces their value for short term investors. And we've learned that the market is mostly short term investors. Mm -hmm. They're not going to look mm -hmm. past the recession. They, mm -hmm. The fund managers are absolutely going to exit during a recession because they know those stocks are going down. And so um, they are going to get out and they're going to try to find something that's recession resistant or recession proof. Right. They're going to go for um, yield, maybe from utilities. They're going to look for companies that are not going to they're going to be counter recession. So all of those oh, I things thought you are, were going to say lipsticks. Absolutely, they're going to look at lipsticks, and they're. That's going to my look... favorite recession-proof example. Everybody buys lipstick because they're cheap and they make you feel better. And look at the price of Ulta. I mean, Ulta is this terrific company that's out there, um, the, doing lipstick and everything else in their store, and they're priced off the chart. I mean, they're so seriously overpriced. Uh, not a knock on Ulta at all. They deserve their great success, and they're going to continue to have great success. They're run by a fabulous CEO. The problem is everyone who's looking for a hedge against recession is looking at lipstick. Hmm. Already looking so at lipstick. So I, I wasn't super original with my connection. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. But it's a really good point. Um, I think probably that's one of the things that's propping up Chipotle's price to a certain degree, right? Because, hmm. um, you know, Chipotle could be at 160 and it wouldn't be stupidly low. Mm -hmm. It just, and I'd love it if it would go there, please, because I'd like to buy a bunch more there. But at 300 and something, it's, you know, it's very recession resistant company. Why? Because people stop eating at Red Lobster and Olive Garden and they go downscale one notch and they start floating into that Chipotle restaurant where they can sit down for an $11 meal. I mean, one burrito at Chipotle feeds me for two meals. I'm not kidding. It feeds a family. It's a fabulous deal. And you're getting really high quality food. And that's, you know, not to make this a Chipotle infomercial. That's <laughs> why the money flows in there. And you're going to see it respond. If we go into a recession, you're going to see Chipotle numbers continue to grow. And when that happens, people will move money over there. And away mm -hmm. from things like automobile companies, which are notoriously non-recession resistant. They're, they're, in fact, the leading indicator of a recession. So, you know, we... We're right on the edge of that. We've been 10 years into this whole process and we're right on the edge. So you can see that these things are linked together. Here you have the early Buffett. Warren had a low enough, a small enough amount of capital under management that he felt he could exit companies and then move the money to more uh, velocity investments. M money where the, you're going from something that's now at its intrinsic value and only going to grow at the rate of its cash, uh, cash growth moving it to something that's on sale and could go in a year or three years, booming back up to its original intrinsic value. And then you've doubled your money again rather than leaving it there and Wrigley's at 4%. Are you saying he changed his strategy 
a little bit, yeah, or that's yeah. kind of always been the idea. Excuse me. But then he just had so much money, he kind of had to, or maybe both. Yeah, no, he 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 did it because of the capital, the size of the capital. He yeah. said once that if he only had a million dollars to to worry about investing, mm -hmm. he'd be making 50% a year. And the, the reason he'd be making 50% a year is because he'd be rotating it. He'd be exiting these companies as they got near intrinsic value and buying the ones that are in super sale and then exiting when they get to intrinsic value and so on. Okay, so the part that we've never talked about here is this thing about selling when it reaches intrinsic value. Because right. what you taught me was sell, like, first of all, hold forever. Like you're going to buy hold this forever. company, you're going to keep it forever. Right. The only reason you would ever sell is if the story changes. Right. So this is a shift from that. Still true. That, that's still true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the reason I say true? that is because these things aren't exclusive. It, it, it's correct investing strategy to do exactly what you just said. And that I is like going it. to make I you I gotta rich. be honest, I like it. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel, um, how to put this? It, it gives me the right mindset towards my buying, which is really important to me as a brand new investor who's totally still learning this stuff and still practicing and still experiencing what it feels like to buy a company and stamp my name on it. Um, and so, uh, this idea of sort of moving money in and out makes me feel more um, temporary around it. I'm not sure I like that feeling a whole lot. And I'm glad you don't like that feeling a whole lot. It it takes you more into um, a more aggressive and competitive world. Yeah. yeah. That you don't really need to be part of. Um, oh, that's an, an interesting way to say it. Hmm. As an individual investor, you're going to be very wealthy if you're making 15% a year, right? We've talked about that. That's a yeah. great target. We you're have charts really, about that. Yeah, we have charts about that. And so you're going to get wealthy. It's just a matter of time and you just stay with it. And so really good companies can grow at 15% a year for a long, long time. 20 years, 30 years is not ridiculous for a company to continue to grow. At, at that price. It's only when they get to be very, very large that their growth rate starts to get down to single digits. So great companies can can sustain that middle teens level of growth for a long time. And really great companies might be able to sustain 20% for a long, long time. And so you'd, you'd be making a mistake to exit those companies because they're already massive, uh, massive wealth creation machines. Hmm. You know, it'd be the same mistake you'd make as if you're getting rid of real estate in a really great market like a Jackson Hole or a La Jolla, California or New York City uh, because there starts to be a recession. That real estate is so there's so little of it that there will always be this great market <clears throat> and it will continue to grow ahead of inflation and ahead of most anything else. But it won't continue to grow ahead of stocks that are really good. Those are the best compounding machines that you can own is a wonderful business that's continuing its growth and has a lot of room, a lot of ceiling above it to grow into. I, I would recommend you hang on to those. Absolutely. And yet, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> the market overall exists. Macroeconomic forces overall exist. Yep. Recessions exist. Yep. 
boom market overpriced irrational exuberance exists. Yep. And so I imagine that's why Warren Buffett goes in and out of companies when it goes up in price. He did, but now he's too big. He said when he was talking about Coca-Cola, some people said, look, at one point in the late 1990s, Coca-Cola got priced so high, it was almost double Pepsi. Like, and it just, it was just ridiculous. Everybody was buying Coca-Cola. It was Coca-Cola was a new grade. And it got ridiculously high price and everybody knew it, right? I think it peaked at 78. And then it came down into the 40s, right? And now it's like, and then I think it got as low as 35. And people were asking Buffett, why didn't you sell this thing when it was so obviously overpriced? You've done that in the past with other companies. Why didn't you do it here? And he just said, I'm just not nimble enough anymore. Yeah, but that's not our situation. So it sounds to me like you're saying... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean it's not our situation? That's exactly the situation we're talking about as the other reason to sell. So the story hasn't changed. The story is still good. But now the company has gone to a price well above its intrinsic value. Yeah, but I was saying our situation is we don't have so much money that us moving in and out of stocks is going to affect them. Oh, right. That's not our situation. That's not our situation. So we are more nimble. We are massively nimble. Yeah. They won't notice if you leave (laughs) Coca-Cola. Yeah, I don't think they'll notice. (laughs) They're not going to drop the price. And maybe people didn't understand there that what what we're talking about is that when Buffett says he's not nimble, it means that if he were to sell his 10% stake in Coca-Cola, it would crater the price. It would take the price from 78 to 40 or 30 all by itself. That would be a disaster. So um, he can't do that anymore. He takes... If he wants out of something, like he's exiting IBM, it's going to take him years to exit that without creating a problem with the stock. Um, And even the fact that he's getting out created a problem for the stock. So he's no longer somebody that can do what he used to do. So he's not doing it anymore. Well, so what I'd like to do is consider this prospect that you've teed up of potentially... Ugh, I hate to even say it. I loved not timing, but potentially timing things a little bit simply because of life and market forces. Yep. And so I want next time. No, no, not just that. Simply because of life, market forces, and that we don't have a wash tub for that rainy day. Yeah, you're right. That's Unless the we reason, sell actually. stuff. No, you're exactly right. And that's that's whatever. You're right. I Yes, you're right. A thousand times mark this moment in your diary. You're right. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> I am so in shock right now. <laughs> and you're so right because that is exactly what everybody with limited funds, which is all of us, let's just say, is trying to figure out what to do about that right now. Good. Then let's really dive into this. So next week, we're not probably going to get to MACDs. We might. Oh, really? Okay. Because I think we need to go deeper into this. I mean, I've just introduced to you this idea of intrinsic value being a trigger point. Mm. And let's talk more about that for starters, because that is what I use to determine to exit, not necessarily these arrows. Good, because I don't want to use the arrows. But the arrows have a very important purpose for okay. people who have an index. Ah, 
So let's come back to that over the next two, three weeks. All right. Okay. Till then. Sounds good. Time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Check out Invested. We would love for you to have the information in that book because it is the background to everything we're doing here. And and you can find out more at danielletown.com or at rollinvesting.com. And come to the workshop. I mean, about 15% of the people in the workshop now are all coming from the podcast, which is fantastic. Come to Atlanta. It's really fun. Um, You'll learn a ton. Time to go play. See you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.